Hello there, my name is Jamin Melanson, and welcome to my podcast entitled Reclaimed. Over the next several weeks, you will learn about how I have been reclaimed by God, and still am being reclaimed. My hope, however, is not that you will only learn about me, but you'll also learn about yourself. I'll be using personal stories and biblical stories to relate different truths about being reclaimed as we focus on learning humility, integrity, loyalty, and tranquility in our walk with Jesus. So grab your favorite beverage, something to munch on, and join me as we embark on this journey of being reclaimed. Part 1. Reclaimed in Humility True humility does not know that it is humble. If it did, it would be proud from the contemplation of so fine a virtue. Martin Luther Chapter 4. To obey is better than sacrifice. God does not call us to be successful, but to be obedient. Billy Graham Now you probably won't believe this story, and honestly I don't really blame you. It's going to seem a little out there, and maybe even a tad unbelievable. However, I believe in a God who works in the unbelievable, and I hope you do too. It was Super Bowl 49 on February 1st, 2015. It was the New England Patriots versus the Seattle Seahawks. Originally, as a young kid living in Maine, I was a huge Miami Dolphin fan, and my favorite player was Dan Marino. However, as time went by, I learned to love the New England Patriots, and they became my team. And this was way before they started winning championships. I was a fan of the Pats before they even drafted Tom Brady. So obviously, on this day, my wife and I were both cheering for the New England Patriots to win. And I know some of you right now have stopped listening, and I get that you severely dislike the Patriots. I ask you to put aside those feelings for a few minutes and really engage with this story because it will transcend allegiance to any sports team. On this day, we were at a Super Bowl party at friend's house in Maine. I had reconnected with some of my friends from when I used to live there, and we were all cheering for the Patriots to win. At this time, my sister, her husband, my wife, and I were the only Christians at the party. This is important to remember. I want to recap some of the game in case you may have forgotten or you never watched it. Approaching halftime, the game was tied 7-7, and with less than a minute to go, Tom Brady threw a deep pass down the sideline to Rom Gronkowski, or Gronk, as he's most commonly called. The Patriots go up 14-7. All of us at the party were super happy to have the lead. Seattle had different plans, however. With a perfect drive and a penalty by the Patriots, the Seahawks tied up the game with two seconds left. And then the third quarter, the Seahawks scored 10 more points. It was 24-14 going into the fourth and final quarter of the game. So the Patriots needed two touchdowns to win, or a touchdown and a field goal to tie it. It was at this point in the game, one of my friends turned to me and said, If I put my hand on your head and pray for the Patriots to win, will God hear me? Now what exactly do you do with that? That wasn't something we covered in class at university. I responded with a nervous chuckle and said, (laughs) It doesn't really work like that. And then it was dropped. The conversation moved on and the fourth quarter was about to begin. But I had a nagging thought in the back of my mind. 
one I couldn't quite put into words or shake. I asked God for clarification, and it instantly became clear. Tell them that if the Patriots win, they must agree to come to church next Sunday. I nearly laughed out loud. I wasn't going to say that. So much could go wrong. The Patriots could lose, and then I'd look like a fool. Or what if they win, and then they don't come to church? And so for a few moments in the silence of my head, or God and I argued back and forth. What this means is I argued and God stayed with his initial statement, except he added a reminder. You don't have to add. You don't have to understand. You simply choose to obey or not. Yeah, God went there. And he wasn't wrong. He asked me to do something, and instead of humbly submitting to him and being obedient, I was arguing because of my own personal desire to be in control of the situation. I was convicted repented of my attitude and with a holy sigh you know that deep breath you take before you jump off a cliff I opened my mouth this may sound a little crazy I said to my friends but God wanted me to tell you that if the Patriots win this game then you should agree to come to church next Sunday I didn't dare look at my wife I'm sure she was wondering if I was starting to drink some of the beer or wine that the others had brought and one of my friends agreed outright and then the one who put his hand on my head said, If the Patriots win, I'll go to church for a whole month. I was floored. These were not the responses I was expecting. I didn't know what was going to happen. But I was obedient, and that was all that mattered. A Disobedient King in the book of 1 Samuel, we learn about the beginning of the monarchy in Israel. Originally, God was their king and leader. Eventually, though, the people decided they wanted to be more like their neighbors with a human king to lead them. God relented and the prophet Samuel anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. At first, Saul was a good king. And then one day, he was waiting for Samuel to come and prepare the offerings before battle. Earlier, Samuel had told Saul to wait for seven days and then the prophet would come and offer the sacrifices. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, we are told that the men of Saul were trembling with fear as they waited. And they started to give up. And as soon as the seven days were up, Saul offered the sacrifices himself. And with perfect timing, which always seems to be the case, Samuel arrived and asked what Saul was doing. The king responded with, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. Saul responds in the same way we all seem to respond when conflict emerges. And in fact, it points all the way back to the fall in Genesis. He doesn't take ownership for what he did. He blames it all on the outside circumstances. His men were scattering. Samuel hadn't arrived. The enemy was gathering. Now, you may be wondering why it was wrong for Saul to offer the sacrifice. Samuel commanded him to wait with the authority of God behind him. As the king, Saul was to show obedience to the Lord as an example to the rest of Israel. As well, when the men started to get fearful, fearful Saul should have pointed them to have faith in the Lord. Instead, he allowed his pride to dictate his actions, and repercussions were immense. Saul's line as kings would end with him. Seems intense for one decision. After all, we know God is full of mercy and grace. And thus, in chapter 15, God gave Saul a second chance to see if he learned his lesson. Samuel once again visited Saul and told him the new command. 
He is to take the army of Israel and completely destroy the nation of Amalek, including men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. And I know, this is a hard passage for us as Christians. How can God order the destruction of an entire group of people, including babies? It seems out of his character. The fact of the matter is that God is the only one who can make this decision. He is the giver and taker of life. And this may seem difficult to understand, and I pray the Spirit will help us with this understanding. And if I'm going to be completely honest, I still struggle with this in my humanity. It's one of those things that I just have to leave in God's hands to handle because I I really don't get it. But I'm sure there are others out there who can explain it in a much better way than me. But who were the Amalekites? They were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And when the nation of Israel came out of their time in Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them and tried to destroy them. Instead of offering help, these distant cousins wanted to kill them. It was for this reason Samuel told Saul the Amalekites needed to be destroyed. Their time of disobedience and rebellion against God had come to an end. Saul took the army of Israel and attacked. He destroyed almost everything. He spared the king named Agag and the best of the livestock. And then when confronted, Saul told Samuel that the livestock was only spared so they'd be able to use them as sacrifices to the Lord. Samuel would have nothing to do with these excuses. He told Saul, listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul begged for forgiveness, but it wasn't a true begging. He only wanted forgiveness so that he could continue to do what he wanted to do. So the decision was made. Saul hadn't learned his lesson. His impatience and pride led him to not be humble before God. He was only willing to be obedient when it fit Saul's desires and Saul's plans, and not humbly submit and surrender to God's desires and God's plans. An unbelievable catch. Back to the Super Bowl. There's 7 minutes, 55 seconds left in the game. Tom Brady threw a short touchdown to Danny Amendola. It's 24-21. And then nearly 6 minutes later, Brady threw a short pass to Julian Edelman to score another touchdown. The Patriots were ahead. 28-24. There's 2 minutes left in the game. I wasn't just excited for the team I cheered for. I was also excited for God to be proven to my friends who didn't believe. The anticipation in those final moments was overwhelming to say the least. Half of us in the room were standing and the other half were sitting on the edge of their seats waiting to see the outcome. But the game was far from over. With a little over a minute left, Russell Wilson, who was a quarterback for Seattle, threw a deep pass. It was like time slowed down as we watched the play unfold. Malcolm Butler, the defender for the Patriots, and Jermaine Kearse, the receiver for Seattle, both leapt into the air. Butler manages to get his hand on the ball, and they both fall to the ground. The ball's like bouncing everywhere and everywhere, and it had to have hit the ground, and then it's in the receiver's hands. But we cheered because we thought the ball was incomplete. And then we watched the replay, and it never hit the ground. By some strange turn of events, the ball bounced off Curse's legs, tumbled through the air, and Curse was able to caress it into his arms. It was an unbelievable catch. And to make matters worse, 
The ball was caught at the five-yard line with 66 seconds left in the game. It's worth mentioning at this point how Seattle had one of the best running backs in the league, Marshawn Lynch. He was a tank. He could plow through a defensive line with ease. He could run those five yards with his eyes closed and be half asleep. And my heart nearly dropped out of my chest. Again, not simply because I was cheering for the Patriots. I felt like God was going to lose, and my friends would scoff at his existence. I remember even asking why he couldn't have done something to prevent this catch from happening. And all I heard was to trust him. From my perspective, it didn't make any sense. But thankfully, God doesn't work from our perspective. He doesn't ask us to understand. He asks us to obey. And as expected, Marshawn Lynch received the ball in the first play. It looked as if he was going straight to the end zone. But he was stopped at the one-yard line. Everyone in the house was holding their breath. All Seattle had to do was hand the ball to Lynch one more time, and they'd likely take the lead. In an attempt to stop the Patriots from having time to respond with a scoring drive, Seattle ran the clock down to 25 seconds before their second play. Seattle could have also been trying to force the Patriots to take a timeout, but they didn't. The ball was snapped back to Wilson. I, along with everyone else, watched intently for the pass-off. It never happened. Instead, Wilson dropped back, which indicated he was going to pass it. He threw the ball, and again, time seemed to slow down. And then Malcolm Butler... The defender who was unable to stop the catch earlier in the sequence, he stepped up and he intercepted the pass. Everyone at the house jumped up in the air as we were all cheering. I grabbed my friends. We were hopping around and screaming. I nearly passed out. I was screaming so much. But I wasn't just screaming for the Patriots. I was screaming because God came through. And then I heard those words from my head-patting friend. Do you know what this means? The other one responded, yeah, we're going to freaking church. Except he didn't say freaking, he said something else. But those words were like honey to my ears. And they did come to church. They both came the next week, and the one who said he'd come for a month did. He would even follow along in the Bible and ask me questions after I preached. While this was great, I felt like they were going to both start following Jesus, and that didn't happen right away. And I still don't know if it has happened, and in all honesty, I don't need to worry about that. I was obedient to what God had asked. And that is what was important. I need to leave the rest to him. Now, I don't believe that God wanted the New England Patriots to win this Super Bowl. Because he's not really a fan of any team. But they won because it was going to bring God the most glory. I'm a firm believer that if I had not been obedient and said what he told me to say, the Patriots would have lost the game. Marshawn Lynch would have run the ball in and scored. Now, I wouldn't complain if, like, someone from the Patriots organization heard this and they're like, you know what? We should get this guy a Super Bowl ring. Like, I really wouldn't complain about that. But I'm glad to be part of this story and to see how I brought glory to God. An obedient surrender. I know the biblical story in this chapter is a hard one to swallow. And I pray you've been able to hear what I've been sharing. Being obedient to God is a prime example of being reclaimed in humility. It isn't always easy. I know I shared a story about a time when I was obedient, even if it took a little convincing, but I can also share many stories about times when I wasn't obedient. The issue is I don't know the effect that they have because I didn't actually listen. And part of the struggle, at least for me, is trying to figure out if it's God telling me or if it's my own voice. 
In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. We'll dig more to this in the next chapter, actually, but it's, it's worth mentioning here. In order to be obedient to God, we need to know him and know his voice. That means spending time with him, reading the Bible, praying, talking, meditating upon his word. For me, I often find that if the voice is relentless, it's from God. If it's my own voice, it usually disappears within seconds. Sometimes my voice wants me to do something and pass it off as God's voice because I will look good. But that isn't humility. That's pride. And God will not ask any of us to be prideful. Being obedient to God is a form of surrender. We are surrendering our control, our wants, our desires. Is there anyone else that likes to have control? Because I do. And God likes to wrestle it away from me. I mean, I imagine it more like a lightsaber battle in my head, but wrestles the more relatable metaphor. And he isn't doing this because he's a control freak. That's me. I'm the control freak. He's doing it because he knows what's best for me. It's like when I take my dog Lucy for a walk. She wants to dictate how fast we can go. But I know better. I know there are places to avoid. I know she shouldn't be running out into the middle of this street, even if she sees a cat running that way. She doesn't like when I correct her or hold her leash closer to me as I try to help her be obedient. She wants control. And we are the same way with God. We want full control. God is leading us in one direction, and we are constantly pulling to go in the opposite. We don't want to surrender our control. We don't want to humbly submit to Him. I can't tell you how you need to be obedient to Christ. God hasn't given me that superpower. All I can say is in order to be reclaimed in humility by God, we must be living a life of obedience before Him. Only you know what God is asking you to do. Maybe He's asking you to share the gospel with your co-worker or classmate who no one seems to get along with. Maybe He wants you to invite a neighbor over to your house and get to know them. Maybe He wants you to present a school project connected to something in the Bible. Maybe He wants you to marry your partner. Maybe he wants you to end a relationship. Maybe he wants you to train to be a pastor. Maybe he wants you to go to medical school. Maybe he wants you to dedicate your life to sharing the gospel with a certain group in another country. Maybe he wants you to stay in a town even when leaving seems like the better option and you have no idea where he's leading. That's my current form of obedience right now. Maybe he wants you to write a book, write a song, help with a certain ministry in your local church setting, Open a small business in your community. Give money to a business in your community. I could go on and on because the list is endless. Because really God could ask you to do anything. Some of it may seem easy. While other times you wonder if God is calling you at all. Because you wonder, am I even the right person for this? But God does not call us to understand. He simply calls us to be obedient. Um, Being obedient is an act of humble surrender. It's letting go of our control and trusting God fully to lead us where he wants us. This will stretch us. This will make us depend and trust on him even more. But God will not fail us. If he's calling us to something, he will not abandon us in the middle. He will stay with us from start to finish, even if it may seem like he isn't there. When we obey God, we will be reclaimed in humility. So what's he asking you to do? You don't know? Take some serious time to pray, seek, and meditate about it. Get away for a couple hours if you need to. Turn off your phone, connect with God, and be obedient to whatever he is asking of you.
thank you for joining me this week on Reclaimed and digging into to obey is better than sacrifice. How did God speak to you today? I hope he has been speaking to you and I encourage you to let someone know how he did because we grow even more when we share the journey with others. And being reclaimed by God only works when we're open with ourselves and others. So share your story. May the Lord be with you this week. I'm looking forward to having you join me next week as we start part two of Reclaimed, which is being reclaimed by loyalty. And the chapter we're going to look at, the forgotten part of the armor. Hanei Akmatov, my friends. Take care, and we will see you soon. Some resources to go along with the chapter today is Counterculture by David Platt, Multiply by Francis Chan, and Hashtag Struggles by Craig Gauchel. We'll talk to you later.